you may leave with some kind of energy. Just make your way out of here. Thank you. Well, it's great to be here and great to be with you all. Even though just a few weeks ago you had a Scotsman in the pulpit. <laughs> William, William Mac, uh, Mackenzie. Some of you remember Billy Mackenzie, do you? Well, he was here. You heard him. And it's amazing. You know, now you've got an Englishman. Do you know there's some sort of competition between the Scots and the English? And there was an Englishman who was campaigning as a member of Parliament just south of the Scottish border. And his stump speech was this especially up there, just south of the Scottish border. He said, I was born an Englishman, I was raised an Englishman, and I shall die an Englishman. And a wee Scottish voice from the back of the hall piped up and said, Ach man, have you no ambition? <laughs> so now you've got me to put up with. We're going to be looking at this passage from 1 Corinthians and like a lot of uh, doctrines that are seminal, central, what the Apostle Paul says here is that what he is declaring in this is of first importance. So while there are all kinds of very important doctrines and teachings, Paul says that what I'm telling you right now, this is right at the beginning of this passage, is of first importance. Verse 3, 1 Corinthians 15. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So he's laid those two things side by side, the death of Christ on the cross and Jesus walking from the grave alive, what we call the resurrection. He has laid those side by side and said that they are of absolute first, premium, therefore all-important, importance. And here's the reality for you and for me today as he spells it out that if Christ is not raised from the dead and he reflects on that. Take a look at verse 17. He says what that looks like. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. He's earlier said that their preaching is futile his preaching is futile, and that their faith is futile. You know what futility is? 
It's absolutely empty. If it's futile, there's nothing there. So if Christ has not been raised from the dead, here is Paul saying it, Scripture reflecting on it as he's written it, then this is all a myth. It's, it's just a vapor. You sing songs, you say prayers, you've got Bibles out there in your seats. You sort of greet each other and uh, there's nothing there. We're just playing games. If Christ is not alive. He says something else very powerful. And we have endeavored in some respect here to ask God to forgive us our sinfulness and the stuff that we've done that's just so rotten. But he says this, not only is your faith futile, you are still in your sins. If Christ has not been raised from the dead. So you may try to kid yourself that you're really forgiven, but you're stuck with the mess. You know all that screwed up stuff that went through your mind? All the rotten, stinking things you really have done, thought, said, or are even planning to do? You're stuck with it. So the whole business of thinking that you might lift your guilt, somehow walk away clean, there's nothing there for you to really believe in. If Christ did not rise from the dead, you're still stuck in your sins. No hope for the future, no hope of any change. The history of yesterday becomes really the promise of whatever the rest of your life is. How would you like to be stuck with that? To drag like a ball and chain the guilt of what you have done in your lives. Look, I wasn't raised to go to church. And I felt guilty as hell about the sin that I'd been into. It was one of the things that made Jesus appear so very, very attractive that I could be forgiven. But I never went to church. My father committed suicide when I was a lad of seven. My mother told me later he died an atheist. We were never in church together. We had no Bible in our home. We never prayed. We never said grace. We never did a now I lay me down to sleep prayer. So when I ran into a chap in Oxford, which is where I was born and raised, and he talked to me about Jesus dying on the cross so that I could be forgiven, that was new information. I knew Jesus died on a cross. You can't miss that in England or anywhere in Europe, really. But what's he doing there? And if he really died there and that was the end of it, when you have this promise of forgiveness, it's not really true. So the resurrection of Jesus is absolutely central to the message that this chap was giving me that I could actually begin again and leave all the crap and the filth behind and live a brand new life. 
with Jesus in it. And the hope of that is all resting on Jesus being alive, walking from the grave alive, so that alive he can come into our lives and pull off that miracle of his forgiveness. And then it says one other thing here. I mean, he's, if Christ is not risen from the dead, it's like he eradicates everything that we call Christian hope and faith. Because the next thing he says is that those who have died have fallen asleep, that is, verse 19, and that's where they are. They've perished. So if in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we're of all people most to be pitied. We're pitiful. I love the way you southern people say that, by the way, if you are from the south. You sometimes hear, I hear women say, of some other woman, often, isn't she pitiful? And then they often add this little phrase, bless her heart. <laughs> you are pitiful. If you put your confidence in Christ... And everybody who has died has just gone. And everything you've set your hope in for an eternal life and future where there is no more pain, nor death, nor tears, isn't real. If Jesus has not really risen from the dead. So, it's wonderful that Paul immediately goes on to say, but in fact, Christ is risen. Now, early on in the chapter, if you look at it with me, he gives the evidence for that. When he says that he's delivered, this is verse 3, as of first importance that Christ died, verse 4, that he was buried and raised on the third day, all this in accordance with the Scriptures, he then goes on to give evidence of his appearing to Kephas, that is Peter, then to the twelve, the apostolic band, minus Judas. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, as if to say you can go ask them. Though it does say some have fallen asleep. And the importance of mentioning this, I mean, he mentions that he appears to Peter. Later on, he says he appears to me as of one untimely born. This is Paul. But when he says that of an individual who says they've had this experience, it could be written off as an hallucination, just something they thought they saw. But when it's the whole of the apostolic band together, or 500 people, this is the only place this information turns up right here, 500 people at one time, that's no hallucination. Fact of the matter is that psychiatric doctors say that no two people, no two people can have the same hallucination at the same time. 
They may be both hallucinating, but to have the same hallucination at the same time is impossible. So if you've got the whole of the apostolic band and or 500 other people, then it's not just something they thought they saw. And it's strong evidence that what happened really happened. And then when it speaks of James there, you see James who's mentioned? That is not James, the brother of John. By this time, James, it could be James, the brother of John, but the chances are it is not because John was the second, excuse me, James was the second apostle to be martyred, executed after Stephen. You read about it in the Acts of the Apostles. But Jesus had a brother named James. And that James became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. So then at Acts 15, when Paul, who's become a believer and is now preaching the gospel and seeing Gentiles come to faith, comes back to Jerusalem to talk about whether Gentiles have to become Jews in order to be real followers of Jesus the Messiah, which was the big discussion of the early church. Do Gentiles have to become Jews in order to be authentic Christians? And the first big council of the church in Jerusalem was to deal with that issue and who was chairing, who was the senior pastor or bishop of the church? James, the brother of Jesus. James, the brother of John, was dead. James, the brother of Jesus, was running that show. Now, the significance of that in terms of whether Jesus was really alive or not is this. I just told you I was not raised to go to church. When I first became a believer, and you've got it there in your program, I went to hear Billy Graham preach. There was some other stuff too. I did go to church for the first time chasing a girl who'd broken my heart. And the preacher was so great, I went more and more continually to hear him. And the preacher asked me to go hear Billy Graham. And that night, hearing Billy Graham, I asked Jesus to come into my life. I walked down front, handed it all over to him. Walked out onto the streets, feeling clean on the inside for the first time in my whole human experience. 18 years of age. Done enough screwed up, stinking, rotten things to have guilt a mile deep. To walk out onto the streets of London, forgiven, was exhilarating. I actually went dancing through the streets of London, swinging around the lampposts. I felt like Gene Kelly, sort of singing and dancing in the rain. For you older people out there who know what that is. Went home and told my mother, I've become a Christian. I thought she'd be pleased to have this. I was the firstborn of four boys. I thought she'd be thrilled that I now had become 
religious and would fly straight. And she turned me off like that. I spoke to my three brothers. I said, hey, guess what? And I explained it to them. And they turned me off. I don't know if you've had this experience, but very often when you come to faith and you go tell your husband, your wife, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, or your family, they do not get excited if they're not believers. If they are, they get very excited. But my family was not. So I got thumbs down from all of them. None of the brothers and sisters of Jesus believed he was who he said he was. You read the Gospels, and they thought he was beside himself. They were like went out to try and rescue him from himself. That James, the brother of Jesus, who grew up with him in his family, is now the leader of the church in Jerusalem is incredible of evidence that when it says here that he saw Jesus alive after they'd executed him and he died that ugly death. And if you saw the movie, The Passion of the Christ, flogged within an inch of his life before they nailed him to the cross. You get the picture that James, who really didn't believe any of that, Because how could his brother be the Messiah? How could his brother be God in the flesh? How could his brother say the things like, I'm the light of the world? His brother, I'm the light of the world. Whoever believes in me, though he walk in darkness with the others, he won't be in darkness himself. He'll have the light of life. Or later say, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Who could actually say this? I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. If you've got a kid brother who's going around saying that, you think he's nuts. And that's what they thought. But when he came back from the dead, He got it. And then when it speaks about this, uh, this evidence here, Paul saying, last of all, he appeared to me. Peter bears witness to this. Paul was an absolute opponent of the Christian faith, was present at the first martyrdom, Stephen. He was antagonized by these believers. And at the time he met Jesus, was on his way to Damascus to round up more so-called followers of the way, Jesus followers, and put them in prison and have them flogged, men and women. And then he meets Jesus. And he says, who are you, Lord? He says, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. Suddenly this genius, because he was a rabbinical genius, 
had to recompute all his learning so that he ends up being the major proponent of the faith who wrote most of the New Testament and in fact whose words we are now looking at and reflecting on together. What do you think the chances of that opponent of the Christian faith What do you think the chances are that he would become the major exponent or proponent of the Christian faith? What do you think the chances are? I'll tell you what that was like. That was like, and I always struggle with his name, Ahmadinejad, the nutcase out there in the Middle East who's trying to bring in the 12th Imam. What would you think if Ahmadinejad turns up on TV tonight standing on some balcony out there in the Middle East saying, I met Jesus last night and I'm going to give my life for the rest of my life to convincing the rest of the world that he really is the Savior. Do you think that's going to happen? You're saying, no way, Jose. That Paul, the Saul of Tarsus, became that evangelist is as remarkable. So Paul has amassed this evidence and he sees himself as like the final nail in the coffin of unbelief. I've become a believer. I saw him. I'm not really fit to be called an apostle, that is a real preacher of the gospel, because I persecuted the church. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. So he amasses this evidence, and he's not just saying, I saw him, but he does say, I saw him. And it's all encouraging for us. And my goal here in sharing this with you is for you to grasp with both hands the very fact that Jesus is alive. He is here. It is possible to have your sins forgiven. That is real. Your life is not futile. Your faith is not just an empty vapor. And the hope you have of heaven when you die because of what Christ has done is real. And that gives you a foundation to go out and live your life dramatically, excitedly for something more than just the next rock concert, the next album release, or whatever just to graduate or to make more money or to get over a sickness or to find somebody who loves you and marry them. To put all of that in the context that beyond this life there is the hope of glory as the New Testament describes it. Heaven is real. Jesus is here. He loves you as much right now as the day when he died on the cross for you. 
And that same Jesus can come into your life and powerfully fill your life and transform who you are. And therefore your future here on earth and your destiny beyond the grave. That's all real. Let me put this in context for my wife and me. My wife's here with me this evening. We've been married, morning rather, excuse me. This must be some of you falling off to sleep gave me the impression it was evening. <laughs> We've been married 45 years. We have four daughters. And that's a mystery to me because I had three brothers. There were four of us as guys. So I moved from a locker room existence to this kind of boutique, <laughs> scented, pandy hose world. <laughs> but we also have a little boy. He died at birth. He was actually a perfectly formed baby. I won't go into the circumstances, but my wife gave birth to our son, and he was dead. And the night before, I had taken her into the hospital, and she had been checked out, and he had a strong heartbeat. And the next morning, he was dead. I took my wife into the hospital, came back and said to our little girls, as we kind of cuddled up in bed together, chances are you're going to have a little brother or sister. And it turned out not to be the case. So while Kathy was ill in the hospital, I take little Jonathan, and we have a little service for him at the cemetery, and he's buried. And I alone was there. Kathy was still ill in the hospital. But in the hospital, she had a vision that was extraordinary. You see, at the same time as she was about to deliver little Jonathan, I had gone to the hospital to visit a lady from my congregation who was dying of cancer. Not that long before, her husband had died of a stroke while she was ill with cancer. Now she's dying of cancer. And I go and see her. And she says, I've got a favor to ask of you. I said, well, what's that? She said, will you take Susanna when I die? That was her daughter, who was 16. She said, I asked Susanna who she wants to live with when I die, and she said she wants to live with John and Kathy Guest. Will you take her? I should have said, I'll go home and talk to Kathy, and we'll pray about it. But given the circumstances I've just described, I said, we'll take her. And then I went home to Kathy and said, guess what I did today? 
And Susanna became our daughter, instant teenager in the house. Since I'd spent most of my life in youth ministry, and still was (laughs) with my own family growing up in youth ministry, was a challenge I welcomed. So that's the backdrop against which when Kathy has this vision, it is this. She sees Susanna's mother, who has died by this time, coming to her in the hospital, holding our baby Jonathan. And she says to Kathy, you take care of Susanna. We'll take care of Jonathan. And there was an Easter. When I was the preacher in my own congregation up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, And before I got up to preach on that Easter Sunday, the choir sang, Because he lives, Jesus. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because he lives, I know he holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives. And in my mind's eye, I see Jonathan coming, running up to me in heaven and saying, Daddy, for the first time, to hear him say, Daddy. I want to ask you this question as we finish. Do you think that's for real? Am I just kidding myself? Is this just a little mental game? A vision here? A vision there? No way, Jose. Jesus is alive. We will see Jonathan again one day. My sins have been forgiven. Heaven is my home. And between here and there, my life is going to count for something because Christ has entered it and filled me with himself. So whatever this world brings on and whatever comes at us, we know what the story really is. Do you? Have you got that kind of confidence? Let me ask you to bow your heads with me.